All right, so let's get into it. We are uh, in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Uh, we've talked so far about uh, some super pertinent issues. I've been surprised, I've really been surprised at how relevant the book of Colossians is for us today. We've talked about some of these age-old questions that are so confusing, like what's the will of God for my life and how do I figure it out? We've talked about what is what should the regular Christian life look like? Uh, and today we're going to talk about what does Christian maturity actually look like? Today we're going to talk about what is and what can we expect and how do you live and how do you work towards a mature Christian life? And I talked about, I talked about this person last week a little bit. Uh, I've actually got a few friends that are like this, but I remember in particular one friend I had when I first became a Christian, a year or two uh, into being a Christian, and I had met another Christian that was, uh, that on the outside, their life looked all together. They looked super Christian. They did all the super Christian stuff that our church you know, had you do to be considered a leader, to be considered mature in the faith. Uh, and yet when I got to know this person, the more I got to know them, the more I saw that this person's internal life was really chaos. It was marked by uh, unhealed and unforgiven resentments that caused this person uh, to have trouble, real trouble in relationships where they would ca literally cause conflict in the relationship. Uh, and not know that they had caused it and become angry and resentful of the other person. And they were going through cycles of this, bouncing in and out of relationships that God had put in this person's life to help grow them and to mature them in the faith. And we might, you might think, how is that even possible? How is it possible for someone to be in the church for 12 years uh, and yet have their life that's characterized by unforgiveness and resentment. And the reason was, in the churches that we uh, were part of, Christian maturity uh, was always measured in these superficial things, like the depth of emotional experience in worship. If you were up front with your hands in the air, it was, it was you were considered to be one of the mature Christians. So not that that's a bad thing. We totally encourage that here. However, it's not the ultimate. Uh, it was measured, Christian maturity was measured in things like a consistent and joyful positive attitude, uh, which, as we know, you're not, oh, life is hard. Uh, uh, and there are times when sorrow is appropriate. And yet, Christian maturity was measured by whether or not you were able to present a masquerade of joy and superficial. Um, uh, you know, um, you know, emotional up, upness. What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> a positive attitude, no matter what. Or it was measured in things like charismatic gifts. Did you have visions? Could you speak in tongues? Or were you able to? Did you have? Did God speak to you personally in your private prayers? Or even the worst, maybe, is did you have a stable secular life? Did you have a good job and a house? And a, and a, you know, and a family, and did you, on the outside, did it look like you had it together? People assumed that if that was true of you, then you also must be mature in the faith. Uh, in 12 years, no one was able to discern what was wrong and what was going on just underneath the surface of this person because the idea, the whole process and the idea of the maturity in the Christian life was literally a lost art. 
No one in 12 years was able to sit down with this person and share uh, with them what Paul teaches in this passage about how God changes his adopted kids from the inside out uh, through very ordinary means, through worship, through the word, through community, and through service. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The big idea of this passage today is that the mature Christian life is learning to become who we really are in Christ from inside out through worship, word, community, and service. Can I ask you to please stand as we read together and listen for this theme through God's inerrant word? Let's read. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your word, uh, the simplicity of it, and the power of it. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see uh, the long term, the long goal process of, of, of an obedience a long obedience in the same direction by which uh, you bring us out of the old things of death and bring us into the new and beautiful ways of life. And that you're doing that right now, Lord, that we should have patience with that, but we should expect that you are doing that in and through us, Lord, so that we might have the whole peace of Christ dwelling richly in us. Uh, And so we pray, Lord, that as we study this passage today, that you would show us the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for us and who he is and what his spirit is doing in and through us now 
and how he does that uh, through worship and word and community and service. Uh, illuminate our minds, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise us to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So the very first part, first part, the very first part of, of Christian maturity uh, is not trying to become something we're not. It's learning to become who we really are in Christ. It's learning how to become who we really are in Christ. You guys all know the story of the ugly duckling, right? Famous story. The ugly duckling, the duck hatches with all his duck brothers, and he's kind of, he's He's a little bit bigger, and he's gray. He's not yellow. He's kind of ugly. Uh, and the ugly duckling wanted more than anything in the world to be a duck. He kept, kept on trying to do duck stuff. But in the, end, in the end, it just didn't work. He was rejected by all the ducks, and eventually he had to go off on his own because as the story continues, he wasn't a duck. He was, he was one of those beautiful white birds that he used to see flying high above. Uh, and as he grew and as he matured into what he was, he one day he realized that he was never a duck. He wasn't a duck at all. He was, in fact, a swan, a beautiful swan. Uh, and he began to live his life as a swan. Now, why do I tell you that story? The story is because you all are a bunch of ugly ducklings. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> Uh, you're sometimes, and some of you, and some of us at different times, we're still trying real hard to be a duck. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> still getting all caught up in that dirty duck business and trying to do your thing, but you are not a duck. Uh, you're not a duck. And since the very day of your salvation, you haven't been a duck. You have been a swan, and your place is above with Christ. And that's why it's so important to start out the process or the thinking about who we are in Jesus first uh, so that we know who we are, who we are now. Listen how intent Paul is to get this point across that we are adopted children of God. Listen how intent he is. Before he says anything out about Christian maturity, he starts off by saying this in, in verse one. He says, then you have been raised with Christ, that if, uh, without getting into a bunch of detailed Greek exegesis, in Greek there are different ifs, depending on, depending on certain things, and there's an if that means sense. It's assumed to be true, and we use, we use it sometimes in the same way. So really a better way to translate that, to understand uh, for our English-speaking ears, is that sense, you have been raised with Christ. That's past tense. This is really the counter. It's the positive counterpoint to the point that Paul made last chapter where he said, since you have died with Christ, since you have died with Christ, and since you have been raised with Christ, laying these out as fact. And then in a paraphrase of verse one and two, he says, since this is true, stop living like you're still dead and instead start living like you're alive because you are. Why? He goes on to say, uh, for you have died, that's a fact, and your life is hidden now with Christ in God, that's a fact. And when Christ, who is your life, that's a fact, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory, fact. 
Those are all, those aren't, none of that is presented as maybe, maybe not. It's all presented as this is true of you because of Christ's work on your behalf. Five matter of fact statements without any qualification. You have died. You have been raised. Your life is hidden with Christ. Christ is your life. You will appear in glory. And Paul's just laying it on thick here, right? But wait, if you're still not convinced, there's more. If we go down the chapter a little bit to verse 12, what does he call us? God's chosen ones, that God has chosen us. And then he says that we are, even now in our sin, holy, that God has set us apart for his purposes to be his people. Uh, And we are beloved. And when God says beloved, it doesn't mean that he has warm, fuzzy feelings about you. That's a, a term that expresses his covenant commitment and faithfulness. If God calls you beloved, it means that you have been brought into the family as an adopted child, uh, and you are part of the family of God, and that process cannot be reversed. So look, Paul's kind of hammering it in here, right? And I'm hammering it in a little bit, because I want you to see this, right? We, this is, you know, kind of, these things can be kind of controversial, I get it, but whenever and this, this happens all the time through Scripture, I want you to see that this idea that God has chosen us, that God has called us into his family, <clears throat> that God has adopted us, his children, and that he considers all these things to already be true of us, this stuff is, is, what, is the very fabric of the New Testament. It's not just some truth here and some truth there. It's the underlying assumptions that are made that, uh, that undergird everything else that it says. All of Paul's letters are like this. The first half, he says, this is what's true of you in Jesus. You are secure in Christ. Uh, If you are truly a Christian and you see, you believe in the word, you see God regenerating you, you see in your innermost heart, you love the law of God and wish you could do it even in the things where you can't. That means that you are part of the family of God. And now, then he switches gears. Now, since that's true of you, start acting like who you really are. And that's what he does here too, uh, which is why you can't be a duck no more. You can try. You can still try to be a duck. You can go back and do all your old dirty duck stuff, but it's not gonna work. It won't work in the same way. It won't feel the same way. You won't get the same enjoyment out of it you used to get. In fact, it'll leave you unsatisfied, <laughs> more unsatisfied than when you started. Why is that? Because God has changed us. And God is changing us from the inside out. And that's part two. God is changing us from the inside out. Uh, I feel like we've been talking a whole lot about, (laughs) we've been using a lot of Alcoholics Anonymous illustrations, so I apologize. But, uh, you know, when they work, their work. One of the geniuses, geniuses of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is... The basic, which is the basic text, it like outlines like the program of recovery, which is a spiritual program. It, it, uh, it's how it goes about getting to the real problem. If you read the book carefully, it kind of starts out by saying what you know, right? You, uh, you drink too much. <laughs> you, you drink way too much. And so it starts out by saying, listen, 
Your problem is you drink way too much. When you start drinking, there's no telling how much you're going to drink and where you're going to end up. And so your problem is you drink way too much. And then it, once you kind of, you know, you kind of accept that, it's like, well, actually, that's not really your problem. The problem is if, if that was true, then you could just stop drinking and never drink again and you'd be fine. But the problem, actually, it's really that, once you, that once, when you decide to stop drinking, you can't stay stopped. That's really the problem. Uh, it's not just that you drink too much, but you can't stop even when you want to. And then you kind of like realize like the horror of that situation. And then, it, you know, once you feel desperate enough, it goes, ah, actually, that's not your problem. Really, the problem is deeper than that. The problem is that you are seething with resentment. You hate everybody and everybody and everything for what they did to you and everybody You've wronged you and you are just hurt and seeking revenge and you carry around all that poison within you and that's what's really wrong with you. And then once you kind of accept that, it's like, ah, actually what's really wrong with you is the state of your heart. You are a brutally, brutally selfish person. <laughs> but see, if you just kind of came right out and you, you know, first thing you said was, you're a brutally selfish person, it would be uh, hard to accept, right? But the book works from the outside, actions to the attitudes to the state of the heart, right? Uh, and what does it do that? Because the, the, early, the early AA, early AA was very much modeled on biblical principles, and that's why AA still works today, because it aligns with God's truth, and even people who aren't Christian are able to become sober because God will do that for them. Why? Because God's kindness leads people to repentance. However, it's a great analogy. Look at what Paul does. Paul, the original, uh, he does the same thing in these lists of sin and virtue. He takes us on this journey from the exterior actions to the inner life of the heart and then back out again. Listen. From moving from the outside in. He says, starting verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity. Uh, impurity means like the moral filth or the guilt of, of those actions. And so he starts up the outside by saying um, the actions and the moral stain they cause. And then he moves a little more in and says passion, evil desire. Those are the attitudes or the drives of our heart. And then he finally ends up at covetousness which is the base condition of our hearts. The base condition of our hearts is that we are kind of always never satisfied, wanting more, restless, irritable, discontent, no matter what we have, which he says is the essence and nature of idolatry. Uh, and then very interestingly, he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And uh, it's hard to see this in English. When we see is coming, you think future tense. Somewhere in the future, the wrath of God will come. In the Greek, this means the wrath of God is present now and is continually coming in our life. The wrath of God against our sin is causing us. If we look at what wrath of God is from the book of Romans, it really means God steps back, allows you to suffer the consequence, the natural consequence that your sin, that your brutal selfishness causes in your life, the pain and the suffering of it. 
Uh, and that's happening now as we cling to the old things of death, the things that cause death, uh, the things that we do out of fear of death. Uh, God's wrath is against that by allowing us to suffer the pain of it. And then Paul stops and starts moving from the inside and back out when he talks about the virtues. He says, then, put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That's the state of our heart. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Those are the attitudes. And those attitudes then present themselves in actions, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love as the controlling principle of everything which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And what is love? Love is, uh, love is the concern and the well-being of another even above self. And so the point is, Christian maturity is not just about changing your behaviors. It's not um, it's about learning how to like wrestle your sin down and act in a, in a different way. Uh, because that doesn't work. It doesn't work on the long term. One of our professors used to have this, this image of like trying to, trying, trying to like manage sin uh, in a stoic uh, like you know, behavior modification is like trying to hold down three or four beach balls underwater at the same time. Maybe you get managed to hold one or two down, but the fourth, the third one's popping back up. Then you go to grab that one and you push that one down, the other one's popping back up. We see this all the time. People have like a besetting sin that's really aggravating them, their heart, destroying life, and they manage to get their behavior controlled around it, and then all of a sudden, other areas of sin just flare up in their lives. Christian maturity is not just about behavior modification. It is about changing the state of your heart, going all the way into the inside of who you are as a person and changing the condition of your heart so that your attitudes then naturally are different and the actions that proceed from those attitudes are different. They are the fruit of what's happened internally in your heart. Uh, and so, it, and it's, God has to do that. That's the point. The spirit has to do that work. Dead, spiritually dead people cannot do that. And so the first important point of Christian maturity is realizing that you are in Christ. You have the spirit. And then leaning into that reality is the God's spirit from the inside out changes your nature and then changes the condition and state of your heart and then begins to change your attitudes, and then necessarily your actions change, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago, the idea of bearing fruit. What happens? How, do you, how, does, how does fruit come to be? You don't just like, you know, snap your fingers and a tree appears in your yard with fruit on it. You have to plant a little sapling in the, nutri in the soil, nutritious soil, and water it and fertilize it, and the tree grows over time. And then in, over the course of a few seasons, then it branches and the leaves and the buds. And eventually after years, it starts to produce fruit. The same with us. God is changing us slowly from the inside out 
by changing our hearts, our nature, which changes our attitudes, which changes then our desires, which then changes our actions. We do the right thing for the right reasons out of the right motivation, out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. And that's only something the Spirit can do. Only the Spirit can do that in us. And so when we talk about Christian maturity or the idea of sanctification, the emphasis goes on the Spirit's work in and through us. When we talk about putting to death sin or mortification is the big word, the old word for it, it's by by relying on the power of the Spirit to work in and through us uh, to accomplish these things. And and man, that's a good thing. Listen, that's a great thing. Sometimes when I think we look at sanctification, we're like, ah, suffering, pain. God's going to take away everything cool in life. And I'm going to be stuck like peeling potatoes in the basement of the church. But that's not what it is. Literally, listen, God is taking away from us the old things of death and replacing them with the ways of life. Everybody knows that knows me knows I'm a big Titanic fan. And there's this two scenes in the movie, Titanic, that kind of explain, express this idea. The first is at the very end when the, when the ship goes down and Rose and Jack go down with the ship. There's not really a Rose and, and Jack on the Titanic. That's my... Titanic nerd has to like make that disclaimer. But anyways, they go down. Rose has her life jacket on. And as they go into the water, she comes up. What does she come up into? She comes up into the chaos of a thousand people in freezing cold water drowning all around her. And what happens? The first thing that happens is someone else latches onto her who doesn't have a life jacket and pushes her under and tries to float on top of her right? Why is that? Because he's out of his mind. He's drowning. He's reaching for anything that can keep him afloat to save his life because he's terrified of dying. And that's a good like analogy of the things of death. We are oftentimes in our old life, in our old being, so fearful of death, so afraid of death that we end up like clawing and scratching and jumping on on top of and over other people to get the things that we think we have to have to make us feel safe in this life. Why? Because we're absolutely terrified of dying. And it causes all of that ultra-selfish behavior that pops out of us. Second scene is the scene where prior to this, Rose and Jack are walking through uh, one of the first-class galleys or cabins, and they see Thomas Andrews, the designer of the ship, And he's standing in front of a clock, very calm. He's adjusting the clock, and the the ship is at a, you know, 30, 20-degree angle already. He's not making any attempt whatsoever to save himself. In fact, he takes his life jacket and gives it to Rose. He says, take this, and, you know, God's blessings with you. Why is that? Because Thomas Andrews, a Christian, was fully aware of what was happening and had come to terms with his death. He knew he was going to die and he had made his peace with God. And so he patiently waited for his death because he knew that his death wasn't a terrible, a terrifying thing, as painful as it might be. 
He knew his death was really the transition into the heavenly realms. And so he didn't need to bite and scratch and fight for every tiny little pleasure or privilege or right uh, or to grab, you know, take things from other people or be selfish. He didn't need to do any of that because his, all of his security and all of his hope wasn't in managing to stay alive for another five minutes or another 10 years. It was in the reality that because of what Christ had done for him, he would soon be entering into the heavenly realms. And that's the same with us. God is, through this process, when Paul says all these things, that, you know, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, that's all selfishness because we're afraid of death working out of us. He says, put those things away. You're not dead. You've been raised with Christ. You have life. It's hidden with Christ now. You can't see it. The world can't see it. But we are already the certainty of us becoming glorified beings in the new creation. It's such a sure and certain fact. And Paul says, put those old things away. You don't have to do that anymore. Instead, you can be so sure of your possession of, of, of what we have in Jesus that we can dedicate our lives to loving and serving and caring for other people. And then out of that, in and through that, comes this unexpected joy. So it's a good thing, what God is doing in and through us. Uh, how does he do it? What's the venue, the context for how God changes? How does he get us to put down the old things of death and to pick up the new things of life? He does it... Uh, through very ordinary things. He does it through worship, through the word, through community, and through service. Through worship, through the word, through community, and through service. Since I talked about 80s fitness infomercials last week, I'll keep rolling with that theme. But does anybody remember the ab roller? Anybody remember the ab roller? The ab roller is just this contraption you could get in and do crunches. You could literally like sit in front of the TV while you're watching TV and do this little movement on the ab roller and you would get, the promise was you would get this six, you know, the six pack, right? Ladies, maybe you remember the OG of uh, 80s fitness gear, the thigh master. Anybody remember the thigh master? This little like spring contraption. And the promise was you could sit on your couch while you watch TV and put it in between your legs and you work the thigh master. And as you watch TV, you would get like shapely legs. Uh, my favorite was the gut be gone belt. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? That neoprene belt and you would wrap it around your waist. And just by wearing this belt every day, the promise was it would create a six-pack, you would, you, would, you would lose all your, your belly fat and you create that six-pack that you so desired. And the worst one was the one that like hooked up to the electric, electric shock, you know? They were like little electrodes that went on your stomach and you walk around like this all day trying to watch TV. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Now, look, we look back on that stuff and we're like, that's ridiculous. 
None of those things will work. Why would we ever, why would anyone ever buy that, believing that it would work? Why would anyone fall for that, right? Well, the reason is, I just, I had just read this article that brilliantly like laid it out. The reason is, I read this article that we talked about how humans have the extraordinary ability to convince ourselves that the easier, softer way is always better and always works. Uh, and he gives, uh, even when we know, intellectually, we know that that's not true. We'll still pick the easier, softer way and tell ourselves, this is totally going to work. Watch. <laughs> uh, and he gives two examples. In the article, he has a friend who has a small business that's struggling. The friend's super gifted in administration skills, but what the business really needs is sales. Uh, and so even though he knows that, he continues to just work on admin stuff because it's what he's good at rather than putting himself in the uncomfortable position of increasing sales and tells himself, this is going to break us out. Even though in his mind, he knows it's not true. Same for all this diet and fat stuff. We all know intellectually, we know it's true. If you want to lose weight, you have to eat less calories than you, than you, you have to burn more calories than you eat. And you have to exercise. We know that to be true. And yet, uh, we keep falling for these other like promises that seem exciting, that seem like, you know, sexier than the hard work that's involved. And, and so we fall for it. We buy these contraptions. And then they sit in the bunker under our house, unused, hypothetically speaking, of course, right? <sighs> well, the same is true for spiritual maturity. The same is true for spiritual maturity. We tend, as people, to reach for the present, for the exciting, for the right now, for uh, the sexier version of how it is that we're going to grow as Christians. Um, but the reality is that maturity is not reached in one amazing transformational weekend. The reality is that Christian maturity is not reached with the 40-day Daniel fast. The reality is Christian maturity is not reached through the emotional high of worship. Because Monday morning, your boss is going to get in your face, and Janet's not going to be there to play a song for you. Uh, <laughs> it's not in visions. It's not in the spectacular mountaintop experiences of the Christian life. All those things have their place, and they're good. But they don't produce, Paul says they have no value uh, in overcoming the flesh. Uh, and when we put the ultimate value on those things, we create churches that are basically circuses. What's happening, you know, what's in the center ring this week? Uh, the reality is Christian maturity is achieved over a long time, staying in the same place with the same people, doing the same stuff, do very ordinary things, worship the word community and service. Let me break that down. In verse 15, where it says, and be thankful singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's a word in the New Testament that's used, uh, about, it's, uh, that's used about the thankfulness of worship, getting together and worshiping God together as a family, that not only God comes in our worship service and is, meets us here 
in a special way with his spirit, but by going through these ordinary things every week, by having God speak to us and invite us into worship uh, and just singing songs and encouraging one another, singing songs of worship to God, uh, encourages one another and God uses it to build us up, confessing our sins, hearing the gospel proclaimed over us, hearing the preaching of the word, receiving the Lord's Supper, hearing God's blessing over us at the end. These seem like really ordinary things. And especially if you, every week, years and years and years, it can begin to seem really ordinary. But God promises that in and through that worship, he is shaping us. He is shaping us into a better understanding of who we are in Jesus so that we will be more able to let go of the old selfish things of death and to pick up and carry on in the new ways of life. Uh, And in the word, I like to call it like word saturation, right? It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly to be saturated with his word. Look, we are being, the minute you walk out your door in our culture, the minute you turn on the TV, you are being catechized into a worldview, into a gospel, into an end-time hope that's very different from what the Bible talks about. And so the more we are saturated with the Bible, the more we understand how God created the universe, how the universe operates, who God is, what his character is like, who we are as creatures, and how life works best, and how we are able to then work and, and live in the world, worshiping God, and loving other people. The more we take his word in, the better understanding we have of that, the more wisdom we have. Uh, You know, Nisa and I used to be part of a church a while ago where the idea of like having a word from God for you was a big thing, right? People would come up all the time and be like, the Lord has spoken a word to me, brother, that I want to share with you, like, or something like that. Nine times out of 10, it was, you know, it was all the single guys in the church going to the best looking girl in the small group saying, the Lord has spoken to me and told me that we are going to be married. <laughs> you know, and the girls like you and like the other eight guys in this small group. But there was one guy who like, it kind of freaked me out. He would consistently kind of come up and be like, brother, the word has spoken a word to me. And then he would like say something that like totally made sense and was really valuable and helpful. I was like, how does this guy, how does this guy do it? Then I realized the difference was word saturation. This guy was super saturated in God's word, knew it in and out, lived it, breathed it, so that when he like, you know, said these things, what came out of him was what was in him, the saturation of the word and God's wisdom. And so what he said made a whole lot more sense than uh, the wishful thinking of those other of those other guys, mistaking their wishful thinking for the indwelling spirit. <laughs> not that we are not all like pray to that. Can I get an amen? <laughs> um, and so, listen. The word preached right now. Our confessions say that there's something special that happens when we when the word of God is preached. The Holy Spirit indwells that word and communicates it with our with our hearts in a special way but also just, you know, everyday reading of the Bible, listening to the Bible while you're driving your car, thinking about it, private devotions, Bible study, and especially, let me put a shameless plug in here, Sunday school. Ordinary, right? 
It's an ordinary thing, but we go through a process over the course of years, where if you faithfully attend that, you're going to learn and be, you know, saturated with God's word in all these areas of worship, of Christian discipleship, and of mission. What were the three big things that we are to be about as God's people in the word? So, shameless plug, come to Sunday school. Uh, and the last one, or second, the third one is community. God shapes us through community. Listen, he says, listen to these, listen to these, the, these categories of things that he, that he calls the ways of life, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another in love and forgiving one another and putting on love, considering others more important than self. You cannot do a single one of those things meditating in a cave. Can't be done. So as much as private devotions are, you know, a helpful thing, God shapes us through community by giving us opportunities to exercise those attributes. And well, listen, listen to what uh, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with other in love, what's the, what's the underlying assumed condition? Somebody's sinning against you. Somebody's sinning against you, or you're in relational conflict. And what's our, you know, when that happens, what's our first response? They're crazy. I'm out of here. Man, I, it's one of the most heartbreaking things being a pastor is seeing like God create these relational conflicts in the life of somebody so they can work and grow through it and them just piecing out uh, and bouncing from community to community to community, right? Just, oh, we just want to have a community and love each other the way Jesus loves us. What, what did you just say to me? I'm out of here. I'm going to go find another community where God just wants us to get together and love. What did you just say to me? And People just bounce from group to group to church to church to church, and they never they never appreciate what that's all about. Now, I'm not talking about abusive relationships. I'm not talking about uh, you know being in the midst of heresy. I'm talking about just the you know regular stuff, your regular friends, regular people in your community. There's this great illustration in one of Tim Keller's books where he talks about the rock tumbler. What does a rock tumbler do? It takes all these rough stones, you throw at the rock tumbler, you throw, uh, you know, some, what do you throw in there? Some sand or something, some oil, whatever. And, and you turn the rock tumbler on and it just, you can hear the rocks in there just banging against each other, right? That's totally what church is like. You're just in here, we're just all bumping into one another, hurting each other's feelings, like betraying each other, you know, just doing stuff that hurts each other's feelings. And then after, you know, it, it takes its course and you open the thing up and what comes out? These beautiful, polished, gorgeous stones. That's what community does. Uh, you know, so if you're in a situation, you're in conflict with someone, you feel like you should just, you know, you just want to leave, maybe... God has placed that there for you <clears throat> to help you work out the new and beautiful you <laughs> in sanctification. Uh, and last one is service. You know, it ends, Paul ends by saying, and whatever you do, in word or deed, 
to everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's kind of like Paul's charge at the end of this, this passage. Just go out, whatever you do. If you're doing it, you know, from fulfilling your role as a, in a Christian family, we're going to talk about that next week, as a husband, as a wife, as children. Uh, or if it's in your work and your service to your coworkers, your service to your boss, uh, whether it's in, you know, your relationships outside of those things, or whether it's in overseas mission for Jesus, no matter, and everything in between, all of it, we should be thinking about it, all of it as this is an act of service that I'm presenting and, and giving to the world as an act of worship to God for what he has given me in Jesus. My future is absolutely secure. I'm an adopted child of God. I have inheritance and the new creation. I have no fear of death, no fear of death, no fear of guilt, no fear of judgment, no fear of anything. And so I can dedicate my life to serving and loving the people that God brings into my circle as an act of worship. And it's through those relationships and through those acts of service that the gospel travels across in our day and age, I'm convinced. And so listen, it's not usually super exciting. Uh, it's not super sexy. You can't make hype uh, posts on your Instagram account about it, usually. Uh, it can be super painful. It can make you want to run. Um, and it comes slow over the course of decades. But it has great value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, the brutal selfishness that we all experience as we are terrified of death, uh, and of replacing it with the ways of life. And what comes out of that is the peace of Christ and the joy of the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and the beauty of it. But I pray you would help us to see that we're in the long haul, that you are a God who plays the long game. And there are, as we grow in Christian maturity, to realize that you're doing it. We have the Spirit within us. The Spirit is working within us. You have given us a new nature, and you are in the process of, of changing uh, our desires and our attitudes, which then will necessarily change how we act in the world. And we pray that you would help us to value these simple and ordinary means by which you go about bringing us into maturity. We pray that we would be patient with ourselves and even more so with others. As our church family, as our friends, as our spouses, as our kids, as they sin against us and hurt our feelings, help us to understand this is, the, this is the rock tumbler that you are using to help me be the kind of person that is able to continue to love and be joyful even in the midst of sin. And absorbing that evil and returning the peace of Jesus because I have received an overabundance of peace and of security and of joy because of Jesus and what he's done. Help us to extend that same thing 
to everyone you put in our lives, Lord. And we pray that you would mature us as a people and as a church, and that through those relationships and through that service to the world, wherever we go, that you would give us opportunities to share our faith and that we would be blessed by seeing people come to know you through us and through our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.